I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. And we're looking at verses 16 through 24. And the second part of the message that I began last week entitled, Unreasonable Unbelief. And I think there's, if there's anything that we ought to learn before this message is through today, it's the way that a person's heart can become hardened to the gospel of Christ. Even with the abundant proof of the goodness of Jesus and with admission that we do need great help with our dysfunctional lives, there are people still that reject the message of hope that Christ gives. Uh, if you have become a Christian, and I think most of you have, you, you probably, I would, at least I would hope you would do this, that you would look back on your life and you would think, how did I spend so much time apart from Christ? Why didn't I come to Jesus sooner? And then a second question might come to your mind, why don't more people believe in Jesus? I mean, is it reasonable not to believe in Jesus when he promises us eternal life, when he says that we can have heaven, and then tells us what the consequences are, the opposite of that is, if we don't trust him? Is it reasonable not to believe in Jesus Christ? And when you look at the Bible and you consider the life of Christ, you look what's recorded in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see all the miracles that Jesus did and the compassion that he had for people. He was so uncommon and so unlike anyone else. You have to wonder, how did those people in the time of Jesus miss him? Why didn't they all trust him with all these different things that he did? And this is one of the scriptures where you see uh, this, this kind of a time when Jesus was in such exasperation that he would ask the same question. Now, of course, he knows all things because he's God, but there is at least a hint, I think, of exasperation in this scripture as he looks at the unbelief of people when so much had been done to demonstrate that he really was the Messiah that came from God. Now, a little bit later, when we get into the next section of this chapter, there's some really interesting statements that are made by Jesus as to the cause of unbelief. Why do people not believe when there is so much evidence? And one of the things that we'll learn is that knowledge of Jesus Christ comes by special enlightenment from God. And that doesn't give anyone an excuse, but it does show us how much we totally depend upon God for our salvation. Now, if you look at these scriptures today, we're going to look at verses 16 through 24 once again. And stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus says, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is likened to children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee 
had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and we pray, Lord, that you'd open up our hearts to uh, the message today and help us to understand very clearly what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This section of Scripture follows Jesus' description of John the Baptist as being the greatest prophet that ever lived. John the Baptist, as we've studied him, we know that he was a very unusual man. He was a man that preached a very convicting message. And at first there were many people that came out to hear John in the desert, to hear the messages that he preached, and there were quite a few people that were saved under his preaching. But John the Baptist had this strong message of repentance, and as he began to preach that message more and more, and as it began to sink into the people, and the hardness of a gospel message that included fiery vengeance from God for unbelief, when the people kept hearing that message over and over again from John, instead of accepting the message, they began to criticize him. They didn't want to believe what he said. And then Jesus, at the same time, was going from town to town in Galilee, and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was preaching also a message of repentance from sin. And this began to grow old with the people. And so the seeds of an undertow against Jesus were sown, and those seeds would grow until they actually became a backlash against Jesus, and then finally he was crucified. So... Beginning at verse number 16, as Jesus surveys this problem, we see here the rejection of John and Jesus. Uh, Jesus begins this section with a parable, and he likens this unbelieving generation to to a group of children that couldn't decide what kind of game they wanted to play. They were like children, they were fickle, they liked one game and then another, and sometimes they're so contrary that they don't really want to play any kind of game. They just want to be stubborn and indifferent. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you are like children that play in the marketplace. Now, one thing that hasn't changed very much from the time of Jesus until now are the kind of games that children like to play. Children like to be imitators talked a great deal about this last week. Children like to imitate their their parents, and so they will play games where they're acting out real-life situations. And in this case, the children that Jesus observed playing their games would play things like wedding. And oddly enough, they would play a game called funeral. Uh, These were children that watch these very public events, marriages, weddings taking place, funerals that were held and and people would march through the streets and the weeping and the wailing. And so children would try to play those same kinds of games. They would play wedding and they would choose a bride and uh, a little girl would play the bride and then a little boy would play the groom and then others would be the attendants at the wedding. But other times they didn't like to play that happy game of wedding, and so they would play a sad game. They would play funeral, and they would imitate the sadness and the mourning of a funeral. But always like kids are, they're not satisfied. Some of them aren't satisfied to play either game. And so there are kids that would sit out, and they would say, we don't want to play. And if you don't want to play the game that we want to play, then we're just going to get our stuff and go home. 
This is the analogy that Jesus uses here. It's a parable of how the people reacted to both him and John. And the point that he tried to get across here was that these people were not satisfied no matter what kind of ministry that John and Jesus had. They were looking for something to criticize. And so when John came with one type of attitude, they said, we don't like that type of ministry. And when Jesus came with the opposite approach, they said, we don't like that type of ministry either. And this is what fueled the exasperation of Jesus. And so it caused him to pause and to think, what could I compare these people to? What are they like? And this is when he came up with this. They are like spoiled brats. They're like stubborn children. They can't make up their minds what they want. And so you notice here, he says in verse number 18, they don't like John because he's too different. He's a loner. He lives a weird lifestyle. He stays out in the desert. He doesn't live in a house. He doesn't dress right. He has a very strange diet, and we don't want that. John is too unsociable. He must be crazy or something, some kind of a lunatic because he's living out there in the desert. He's like a man who is demon-possessed. And then in verse number 19, Jesus said, and here's what they say about me. Now, I'm not like John. I'm too sociable. I mix with too many people. I hang out with all different kinds of of people. I don't have the strange diet that John has. I live it up. I party all of the time. I eat too much and I drink too much. And that was a lie, of course. But that was just a way that they could criticize what both John and Jesus did because they were too stubborn to believe the message that they preached. And so they picked on the man. They couldn't be satisfied no matter what John or Jesus did. And the real root of that, I mean, the real cause of all of this is the way that they felt about the gospel itself. It wasn't necessarily the man. It was what they preached. They didn't like it. And so their method of rejecting it was to make excuses for their unbelief. It was unreasonable in this sense that no matter how John or Jesus preached, no matter what method that they preached, no matter what they used, these people were not going to like it because they couldn't be satisfied. And again, the problem is not the approach, it's the message itself. And this is because the gospel message offends people. And if it didn't offend people, you wouldn't have folks that come to church and criticize everything that we do. They would look past my ineptness look past my mistakes or certain parts of the service that they don't like, and they would simply consider this. Is that guy preaching the truth? Is what he says, is that the truth that he's preaching from there? The truth is not the criterion for most people. They're unhappy no matter what you do, and they just want to criticize. Now, really, that's just the gist of verses 16 through 19. We dealt rather extensively with that last week. And in these verses you see how Jesus' rebuke for the people was somewhat mild. Jesus got his point across in a parable. He gave them a somewhat mild rebuke for these fickle, childish ways in which they acted. But now we move on into verse number 20, and here you can sense a change of tone. Here you begin to see the fire in Jesus' eyes. And quite frankly, folks, this is the Jesus that most people don't want to think even exists. They want a peace-loving hippie type of Jesus, the long-haired, soft blue eyes and all of that. They want a Jesus that poo-poos and passes off sin as being inconsequential. They don't want a judgmental Jesus. And yet this is the side of Jesus that we see here as he, as he demonstrates God's hatred of sin and, and his anger over people's unbelief. 
And this change of attitude to one of sternness is the line that Jesus crossed that eventually led to the cruel death of the cross. See, the people were very happy with the healing Jesus, but they weren't happy at all when he told them that they were responsible for repenting to God because of their sins and trusting him as the Savior. You know, sometimes I wonder, what do people think about the cross? What do they really think the cross was about? Why is it that Jesus was crucified? You ever wonder what people think about Jesus? How does a person that never did anything but help people and to heal them and have compassion on them, how does a person like that end up being so hated that they would put him on a cross? I mean, does anybody really think about that? How could that happen? Well, part of the answer is found in these scriptures today. Jesus turned to strong words of rebuke. I want you to notice, secondly, the rebuke of Jesus. Verse 20 says, Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. And listen, because they repented not. And so he began to upbraid them. And that's a word that means that he reproached them. He began to speak words of condemnation against them. And is it any wonder that Jesus would do this? I mean, after chapter 4 and the temptation in the wilderness, we read there in Matthew 4, verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. We have five chapters that follow that of more preaching and more healing, many mighty miracles that Jesus did. And then we come to the end of chapter 9, and we read the same words almost exactly again. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So this was going on for quite some time. Jesus was very consistent about this. He kept preaching. He kept healing. He kept demonstrating that he was the Son of God. But these people never turned their hearts to him. They didn't receive him as the Messiah. And why won't they recognize him? What, what could Jesus do now to say, what could he say or do to convince them to believe and to repent of their sins and to trust him? Now, do you get the picture here? With fire in his eyes, he begins this strong rebuke for all of the love and the compassion and the willingness to forbear with them in their sins. There comes a time when you just have to tell people what will happen if they don't believe. The approach has to change. People are commanded to repent of their sins, and when they don't, there's no choice but to tell them what will happen if they don't. So next then, he makes a comparison. He compares these Gentile cities to cities of the, or rather the cities of Galilee, to cities of the Gentiles. Now this is what we look at next, the comparison to Gentile cities. He says in verse 21, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now what happens when a person hears the gospel of Christ and then he hardens himself against that message? What will happen to you if you listen to the gospel as it's preached from this pulpit And you sit there in indifference and you refuse to do anything about it. Well, we're going to find out about that. Uh, Some people react to the gospel by criticizing it. 
They criticize the preacher. They criticize the church. They don't like what we do no matter what we do. But there are others that just sit there. In their indifference, they refuse to make a move in any direction. And we would say, I guess we would say about them, they're dead in the pew. And what I want to tell you is that what you refuse to do about Christ can be as deadly to your soul as if you decide to take up arms against him. You cannot hear the gospel of Christ, the message of Christ, and sit there and do nothing. Well, let's notice how he picks out two cities in Galilee here, Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities that he had ministered to. And this whole time from chapter 4 to chapter 11, Jesus had been in Galilee. He was going from town to town, preaching the gospel, doing all these mighty works. And these two cities are ones that he picks out of these towns of Galilee. This one, these two along with Capernaum that we'll talk about in just a moment. And he, he talks about the unbelief of these people that had seen so much of what he did. Now today, if you go to Israel, you can visit the ruins of these two cities. They're uh, uninhabited now, and if you really want to know the truth about them, they're not much more than a tourist destination. You go and you look at some ruins, and you look at the excavations there, and you see these two cities that no longer exist. These are two places that refuse to believe in Christ. Now, the location of them is still a little bit of guesswork. Archaeologists aren't thoroughly convinced or certain that they've uncovered these two cities, but most people believe that they have. And uh, I have three pictures that I want to show you that I took in Israel. The first one that you see here is Chorazin, or what they think is Chorazin. And in Chorazin, there's a ruin of a synagogue there. In the second one, you see Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was... Philip's hometown. It's where Peter and Andrew were originally from. And mostly when you look at these places, they're just a heap of rocks. And then the third picture that I have for you is the one that was most impressive to me because here is a street that dates all the way back to the time of Jesus. I mean, they're almost certain that Jesus walked on this very street. You say, well, why is that so unusual? I mean, you go to Israel, what would you expect? Well, most of the places that you are in Israel, you'd never walk where Jesus walked because centuries of of debris and new buildings and all of that have have been piled upon one another. So you really are not walking in the same spot in, in these towns and villages where Jesus walked. But this particular street was unusual because this one they excavated, and they do believe this one dates back all the way to the time of Jesus. Now, it was in these two cities that Jesus did many of his miracles, Now, interestingly, as we go through the New Testament, you'll not find one place where it says that Jesus did a specific miracle in Chorazin or Bethsaida. But we know that Jesus did. Now, he he did many miracles that aren't recorded in the Bible. You remember in the book of John, there John tells us at the end that uh, Jesus did so many miracles that he couldn't even tell you how many that he did. The world couldn't contain all the books that could be written concerning all of the things that Jesus did. So we don't have all of the miracles of Jesus recorded, but we do know that he did miracles in both Bethsaida and Chorazin because right here in Scripture, he speaks about these two cities and he talks about the many mighty works that he'd done there. And what Jesus did that really angered these people so much and that finally they ended up crucifying... If you're crucifying him, if you wonder why did they do that, here's part of the reason. And this is because Jesus compared them to Gentile cities. 
And not just any cities. Now, when I talk about cities, of course, I'm speaking of the people. Not just any cities, but to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Those were two seaport towns on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. They were uh, in, in Phoenicia that bordered Galilee. In the Old Testament, it speaks of these two cities and talks about how exceedingly wicked that they were. Now, a seaport town is a place where just about every type of vermin uh, that you could imagine would visit. I mean, ships come in from all these different places, the ships that have been sailing on the Mediterranean, and uh, the reputation of sailors on those ships is not much different than the reputation of sailors today. Anybody here been in the Navy? Oh, good. I can talk about that then. Uh, You know, sailors don't have a very good reputation. And you have these sailors that would come in. They've been pent up in these ships for days and weeks and sometimes months. And when they finally get to land, they get into all kinds of evil, just about anything that you could imagine. These were very, very wicked people that lived in these two cities. Now, it was bad enough if you told a Jew that he was like a Gentile. But to be compared to Tyre and Sidon, that was really just a whole lot too much. Two very wicked Phoenician cities. These were places that in the past had captured Jews and sold them as slaves to the Greeks. Sidon is where Jezebel came from. That was her hometown. Uh, there, There you had wicked idolatry, Baal worship. One of the causes that Israel was overthrown and taken into captivity was because of their worship of false gods. And some of that came out of these cities. And then Tyre. You think for a moment what the Bible says about Tyre. In Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a scripture that most people believe is the record of the fall of Satan. I'm not going to turn there, but if you want to write the reference down, maybe you can read that later. Ezekiel 28 verses 12 through 14, where uh, the Bible talks about the king of Tyrus and It's really a description that fits the pride of Satan. And that's why many Bible expositors believe that there in Ezekiel 28 and then also in Isaiah 14 that it's talking about the fall of Satan. So this place then, Tyre, that was as wicked as the devil himself. And that's what Jesus compares them to. And he says, of all things, these people are better than you. You're more wicked than they are because if the mighty works that I have done had been done there... If they had seen all these miracles, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was clothes of mourning. And what people would do, they would put on sackcloth, they would sit in a pile of ashes, they would throw the ashes up in the air and let those ashes settle back down on them. That was a scene of mourning. It was a scene of deep contrition. And this is what Jesus says, if they had been able to see the very same things that you saw, those wicked cities would have repented a long time ago. Then he goes on to the city of Capernaum, verse number 23. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So next he talks about the condemnation of Capernaum. Capernaum was the place where Jesus had his headquarters during the Galilean ministry. 
Now, I'll show you a picture of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is really a beautiful spot on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. We took lots of pictures of Capernaum. But this one is of particular interest to me because this is the wall of the synagogue, the ruins of the synagogue that was left there and that, that they're still standing there in Capernaum. And what's so interesting about that, if you can see that black line that runs along the bottom of the wall, that's the part of it that dates all the way back to the time of Jesus. Now, even worse condemnation would come upon them because they had the record of the miracles that Jesus did. We have that recorded in the scriptures. This is not like Bethsaida, not like, not like Chorazin where we don't have any record of miracles, but we do have some about Capernaum. In fact, some of the greatest miracles that Jesus did were done in Capernaum. You go back to the 8th chapter in Matthew, and this was right after the, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus came down from the mountain, and immediately he began to engage in doing different types of miracles. And he did that so that people would understand very clearly why they should listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He was proving it to them. So there's a series of miracles that take place, and a lot of them are done in Capernaum. Jesus healed a centurion servant there. Uh, in chapter 9, you'll find it's the place where a paralyzed man was let down through the roof of a house. You remember that? They tore off the roof of the house and they let this paralyzed man down into the presence of Jesus. And they had to do that because there were so many people there trying to get into that house. They kept, kept pressing against the door. There's no way to get in. So these fellows took this man up on the roof, tore it off, and let this guy down in the presence of Jesus. And there we find that Jesus not only healed him, but he forgave him of his sins. It was also in Capernaum that Jesus healed the woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years. This woman that had been to doctors, as many doctors as she could find, that spent all of her money and couldn't be healed, and Jesus healed that woman after 12 years of that sickness. This is also the place where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, and his daughter had become sick, and she died, and Jesus raised her from the dead. And so all of these great miracles were done in Capernaum, and yet the people did not repent. They'd been given so much evidence of, of what Jesus could do and who he was, and yet they would not repent. Now, that brings me to the third observation, and this is what we really need to hear about this message because this is where Jesus is going. This is where Jesus is going in the passage. Where? The reality of judgment. The reality of judgment. That's the thrust of this message. He upbraids the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum because in their unbelief they would come under the judgment of God. And so we see here the prediction of punishment. Well, what was the terrible sin of these cities? I suppose that we could understand why other cities would incur God's wrath. For example, when Jesus preached in the synagogue at Nazareth in his hometown, they became so angry at what he said, they wanted to take him to a cliff and throw him off the cliff. We can understand why God would bring judgment on Nazareth. We can understand why God would bring judgment upon Jerusalem. The religious leadership had become corrupt, and what they did was they took Jesus to a mock trial. They tried him, then they beat him, they nailed him to a cross, they put him to death. We can understand why judgment came on Jerusalem. We understand why the Romans came in AD 70 and tore down the city walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. 
Makes sense, doesn't it? And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, you can read there and find out that in the time of tribulation, God is going to cause a great earthquake to come to Jerusalem and thousands of people will be killed because of that earthquake. We can understand why God would bring judgment on Jerusalem. We look at the cities of Tyre and Sidon and we understand that. Two wicked Gentile cities, Baal worship, idol worship, Jezebel comes from there. We understand that. We know why God would bring judgment on those cities. The riffraff is there. The evil Phoenicians, nearly as wicked as people could possibly be. But they weren't quite as bad as the other city that Jesus mentioned. He said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom in the judgment than for you. Now what about that city? You know, when the Bible wants to talk about the worst of the worst, what city does he use as an example? Some of you say San Francisco? Well, close, close. It's Sodom. Sodom is the very worst because of this terrible immorality of homosexuality. God sent down fire and brimstone, rained it down on that city and utterly destroyed it. So unlike Bethsaida or Chorazin, you can't find a trace of Sodom today. Consistently throughout Scripture, Sodom is always the worst. And so when Jesus compared Capernaum to Sodom, All of these people must have been scratching their heads. How can he make such a comparison? And yet Jesus said it will be more tolerable for them in the judgment than for you. What do we know about Chorazin and Bethsaida and especially Capernaum? Well, one thing that we know about those cities, there was never an uprising against Jesus there. They never threw Jesus out of town, not like some places did. They never threw him out of town. Jesus was free to do his miracles there. He was able to come and heal people and preach and do anything he wanted. And we never read a place in Scripture where it says that either Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum ever did anything against Jesus other than just let him preach. So what's so bad about this place? Well, they have a huge problem. They had the advantage of hearing the gospel firsthand. They had the advantage of watching Jesus do the miracles. They had the advantage of speaking to Jesus personally and asking for the forgiveness of their sins. And what did they do? The worst thing that people can do with those advantages. They did nothing. They did nothing. They were smug and they were content. They were self-righteous. They watched all of that happen right before their eyes and they said, we don't need that. We don't need Jesus. We believe that we're going to be exalted to heaven. And so they did nothing. And Jesus said, you are the worst. You've heard the gospel and you won't believe. Now those other cities of Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom, they didn't have the miracles that Jesus did. They never saw Jesus. They never heard him preach. Jesus never came there. And in the judgment... They're not going to be judged for the sin of rejecting Christ. They sin under the light that they had. They're going to be judged for that, but they won't be judged for the sin of rejecting Christ. Now, you might think that the worst thing that a person could do is to be a homosexual. And there are many people that think that. Some around here don't. But the Bible calls that a very horrible sin. You might think that the very worst thing that you could do is to be a murderer. Or the worst thing you can do is to be a rapist. And God forbid, the worst thing that you could do is to be a child molester. I mean, we're all agreed what should happen to child molesters. We, we think, well, there's a special spot in hell reserved for them, and they get everything that they deserve. 
But how many of you think that the very worst thing that you could do is to sit in a church like this and hear the gospel of Christ preached and refuse to believe it? How many of you think that the very worst thing that you could do is to reject Christ? How many of you think the very worst thing that you could do is not to believe the message that I'm giving you today? Well, if you think not, then you just run up against Jesus himself because this is exactly what he means in these scriptures. They had the advantage of hearing Christ, of seeing him, listening to the sweet words of the gospel. They could see the love of God flowing from his heart and they refused to believe. And that was the very worst thing that they could do. And I'll tell you, friend, the very worst thing that happened is for you to know today that Jesus has this free offer of mercy, of love, and grace, that Jesus was willing to go to the cross to give his life for you, that he was willing to die an agonizing death because he loves people so much. The worst thing that could happen is for you to hear that and then turn your back on him. And do you know why it's so bad? It's because you're saying the blood of Christ means nothing. The death of Christ means nothing. The sacrifice of Christ is nothing. And you're saying, well, I'm okay. I don't have to repent of my sins. I don't need Christ. So we'll just curse him and let him die. And that's what inactivity does. It's it's indifferent to Jesus, just like everything that he did matters little to nothing at all. And that was the sin of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and especially of Capernaum. They turned their noses up at Jesus in indifference. They said and did nothing. Can you believe that? I mean, the very worst sin that you could commit is to do nothing? You mean because I do nothing, I'm condemned? And that's exactly what the verses mean. That may not be your idea of Jesus, and that might shock you because it shocked them. They heard these comparisons, and they couldn't believe that Jesus would say such things about them. So you know what? They did something. Finally, they did do something. They crucified him. They nailed him to a cross. And that's what happens. You start with nothing, and you end up at the foot of his cross, looking up into his face and spitting on him. That's what happens when you hear and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then there's something else that you need to hear about this, and that's the place of punishment. You see, it's not just turning up your nose at Jesus and deciding that you're going to go your own way. There are terrible consequences for not trusting Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to Capernaum, you will be brought down to hell. What do you think should happen to the worst of sinners? You know, I think we're all agreed. What, what should happen to murderers? What, what, what should happen to child molesters? We're all agreed on that. We, we pretty much can come to agreement. Well, if you agree on that, then you shouldn't have any problem at all with what Jesus says because here he has identified the worst sin. And the worst one is to hear the gospel, to turn from it, and reject it. Now, where do guilty, unforgiven sinners go? And where do people go especially that are guilty of the sin of unbelief? What's their destiny? Well, people don't like this side of Jesus. But again, I ask you, what was the cross for? I mean, why was there a cross? You you answer that question correctly. Consider the cross, and then you'll understand why we have to talk about hell. If there is no hell, there's no need for the cross. And if there's no need for the cross, there's no need for Jesus to die. And if there's no need for Jesus to die, there's no need for him to become a man. And if there's no need for him to become a man, then there's no need for Christianity. 
And there's no need for you to come back next week as we're celebrating Christmas. We don't need any of that. It just keeps stepping further and further back. If you are not a sinner, then you don't need religion and you don't need God. But the Bible says you are a sinner. And God did become man and God did go to the cross and he did die for sinners. And as true as all that is, folks, there is a hell. And if there is no hell, none of it would have been necessary. So do you see here what Jesus is talking about? And, and do you know that Tyre and Sidon, Sidon and Sodom, if those cities existed today and they had the record of Jesus Christ and they knew the miracles that he did, they would believe? That's what Jesus says. And if you at least believe this much, that Jesus was a good man, good men don't lie. And Jesus is telling the truth here. Now, the thing about it is, though, you look back at those cities, Tyre, Sodom, uh, Sidon, and Sodom, and you look at what they had and what they heard, what they saw, and you actually have a greater imperative to believe than they did. You know why? Because you have the whole story. You know what happened to Jesus. He was crucified, and then he arose from the grave. When Jesus said these words, Chorazin hadn't seen that, but Satan didn't didn't know about it, Capernaum didn't know about it. And so what do you think that God demands from you? You have all the information. Jesus abraded these cities for their unbelief. And so how much more do you need to believe in him because you have the whole story? You have all the facts. And so there's nothing left for you to do but to believe. Someday people will stand before God at the judgment and they'll look around them and they'll see the murderers and they'll see the rapists, they'll see the idolaters and they'll see the child molesters and they'll look at them and they'll say, but I never did anything. I never did that. I never did anything. And God will say, precisely, you never did anything. And folks, that's the whole problem. You must believe him. You must receive him as Savior. You must repent of your sins. This is what Jesus demands. And that's the message that we get from this. You can't sit there in your indifference. You must do something. And what you need to do is to receive him today as Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. How serious this is. We think about this time of year of Jesus coming into the world and perhaps we don't even stop to think, or most people don't think, why did he come? He didn't come here to be born as a baby. He came here to die as a man. And the reason that he came to die was because we are sinners deserving of the wrath of God. But Jesus came to take that wrath away on the cross. He came to forgive us of our sins through the blood of the cross. Pray, Lord, that you would turn somebody's heart to that truth today, that people would not sit here in their indifference, But they would understand very clearly, you can't just not make a decision. Indecision is a decision against Christ. There is no middle ground. Speak to someone's heart today, Lord. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.